Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I am excited because today we're going to do part two of the topic that I started with uh, Dr. Galvin a few weeks ago when we talked about problems of term and delivery, and now I am bringing her partner in crime, Dr. Hofkamp, back to the show, and we are going to do part two. If you, of course, remember that Dr. Hofkamp was director of obstetric anesthesia at the Scott and White Medical Center at Temple and clinical associate professor at Texas A&M Health Sciences Center College of Medicine. Mike, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much, Jared. Glad to be here. All right. So this continues our really uh, fun series on obstetric anesthesia, and uh, we're going to, as I said, pick up where I left off with Dr. Jacqueline Galvin last time. So let's jump in. Uh, Mike, why don't we talk about uh, something that we maybe touched on with Dr. Galvin but didn't really delve into, and that's embolic disorders. So what do we think about uh, when we talk about embolic disorders at term pregnancy? Well, you, there's a lot of different embolic disorders. The one that first comes to mind is amniotic fluid embolism, which we'll talk about in a second. Is not really an embolus like pulmonary embolism you think of? Uh, it's more of a, an immune problem. But what it starts off as is when amniotic fluid enters the maternal bloodstream, and that causes an immunologic response that can be devastating for patients. It's a diagnosis of exclusion that's often assigned only after autopsy. It, of all the maternal deaths, it actually accounts for about 12%, and currently the mortality is estimated to be anywhere between 25 to 80%. And so when you get amniotic fluid in your circulation, there's a biphasic response to it. The early phase, you get pulmonary vasospasm, which causes right heart failure, which causes low cardiac output, which causes a VQ mismatch. This is where you get your hypoxemia. The second phase, you're going to get left ventricular failure and pulmonary edema. You're also going to see a disruption of the normal clotting cascade, and this will occur in as many as 66% of patients. And if you're able to make it to the operating room, uh, uterine atony is going to um, occur. Yeah, this is really a catastrophic occurrence, right, when we think of it. All right. So, so, how does it present? It presents as a um, well. First of all, you got to think of amniotic fluid embolism as a diagnosis of exclusion. You want to rule out other things. So, you're going to get these non-specific signs like hypotension, fetal compromise, pulmonary edema. You could see cardiac arrest. You can get cyanosis and get coagulopathy. You can get dyspnea. You can get seizures. You can get urinary like we talked about before. You can get some bronchospasm from the immunologic reaction. You can get a cough and you get a headache. And I think, again, I cannot emphasize enough that amniotic fluid embolism is not so much an embolic event as it's an intravascular exposure to fetal tissue. So you should think about amniotic fluid embolism as an anaphylactoid reaction as opposed to like a thromboembolism like we think of with a PE. Right, so it's a little bit of a misnomer in the sense uh, of how it presents. It's more of a systemic cascade rather than a, a, a single embolism the way, like you said, with a PE or an air embolism would be. That's, that's a perfect way to think of it. So with amniotic fluid embolism, the management is you got to resuscitate the patient. So a lot of times, unfortunately, this is ACLS. Supportive care with endotracheal intubation, possibly pressors to support the blood pressure. Now, in cardiac arrest, we'll talk about this a little bit later, 
a prompt perimortem delivery will improve the maternal and fetal outcomes. And it sounds pretty gruesome, but you've got to do a bedside hysterotomy to take the baby in the labor and delivery suite if that's where the patient happens to be. There's no time to go to the operating room to take care of this. And an emerging therapy is administering intralipid. There have, been some, there have been some case reports, including one at my own institution that was published in uh, ANA case reports uh, earlier this year. And if, for reasons that we don't completely understand, intralipid can kind of shield the, the immune system from seeing these essentially foreign antigens and halt the immune response. And so intralipid is a fairly benign drug that's not going to hurt people, and it can only help. So I think that we should be giving intralipid to, to people who are suspected of having amniotic fluid embolus. And so, Mike, this is really interesting. So do you give it after the onset of the symptoms that make you worry? It's just not given prophylactically. Correct, correct. Yeah, you would have to have someone who would present with a suspected amniotic fluid embolus, and then what you would do is you would um, administer it in hopes of halting the immunologic cascade. Okay, so you're actually uh, giving this, let's say someone was in cardiac arrest, would you be giving it while doing ACLS? Would you kind of, uh, would you give it as a bolus or as a drip? I would give it just like you give it for um, for localized act toxicity. You give 1.5 cc's per kilogram, repeat times one, and uh, no one really knows what the correct dose is for amniotic fluid embolism because amniotic fluid embolism is such a rare event as it is, and very few people have used intralipid, and even fewer have actually bothered to write it up. So I think we need more data before we have conclusive. Um, evidence as to what is best, but just giving, I think, if it were me, I would give the local anesthetic toxicity protocol. Okay, that sounds great. So, anything else in terms of management of amniotic fluid embolism? No, not that I can add. All right, so let's turn to another kind of embolism that we touched on before, uh, but what, what about a pulmonary embolism? What, how do we think of that presenting in pregnancy? So, Pregnancy is going to be a hypercoagulable state because of the hormones involved, uh, mostly estrogen and progesterone. And you're going to get a pulmonary thromboembolism in approximately 0.01 to 0.05% of pregnancies. So it's pretty rare, but it does account for 15% of maternal mortality. You, I don't know if you remember from medical school, but there's the Verkaus triad, yeah. which consists of uh, venous stasis, hypercoagulation, and vascular damage. So in pregnant people, you're going to get venous stasis from the vena cava compression by the uterus. Right. That's going to result in some venous stasis. Like we talked about before, pregnancy is a hypercoagulable state, and so you're going to have this, uh, this, this uh, enhanced platelet turnover and coagulation and fibrinolysis. And you're going to have uh, sometimes vascular damage, particularly with vaginal delivery and separation of the placenta that results in vascular trauma. So the, um, the potential is there in pregnancy. Okay. So you're at high risk. And then if it happens, how does it present? So it really depends on a bunch of things. It could depend on the size, the number of the emboli. It can 
depend on concurrent cardiopulmonary function. Most pregnant people are pretty healthy and can well adapt, can well compensate for uh, this kind of problem. It can also depend on the rate of clot fragmentation and, and lysis of those clots. It can depend on a, the presence or absence of a source for recurrent emboli. And also the location of the embolism. Obviously, a salon embolism is going to be a lot more devastating than something that's a little bit more end arterial. Absolutely. And so how do you make the diagnosis? And so you make the diagnosis from, first of all, clinical suspicion. You want to look to see if the patient's got tachypnea, tachycardia, sometimes fever. Uh, If you're real good with your stethoscope, you can hear an accentuated second heart sound. You can hear localized rails corresponding to the area of embolus. You can see thrombophlebitis in the legs if that's where the embolus came from. And you can also see supraventricular dysrhythmias as the heart attempts to cope with this added afterload on the right side. Okay. And um, you can do diagnostic studies after your clinical suspicion is raised. A negative D-dimer is reassuring. A positive D-dimer is kind of nonspecific. Chest radiographs aren't really that helpful, particularly in the acute phase. The You can do a ventilation perfusion scan, but a normal result doesn't rule out uh, a pulmonary thromboembolus. The spiral CT of angiography has probably the highest sensitivity and specificity, and people always get bent out of shape about exposing a fetus to this level of radiation. But in this case, if your clinical suspicion is high, the benefits of making the diagnosis, starting the appropriate therapy outweigh the risk of the fetus. And you can also use ultrasound in the legs to look for a DVT. Now, what about the other thing we will do sometimes in the ICU, Mike, is we will do an ultrasound or an echo to look at the right heart for right ventricular dilation um, in the setting of uh, a, a PE that might be causing right heart strain. Yes, that's, that's also a very reasonable study to do if you have the capabilities of doing so. Um, do you have the cardiologists do that, or are you skilled personally enough to put transthoracic probe on and, and make that assessment? Yeah, we'll do it as intensivists, but certainly if we want to confirm the diagnosis, we'll get a, for, a formal echo. Unless the patient is actually unstable and crashing, then if we see that dilated right ventricle, we, we may act on that sort of suspicion that that makes it more likely that it's a PE. Yeah, that sounds very, very reasonable. All right. So um, what other kinds of embolism do we see other than the amniotic fluid that we talked about and the sort of traditional PE? Are there other things? Well, you can get this so-called septic pelvic vein thromboses, and these can occur after vaginal or cesarean delivery. And again, you've got Virchow's triad in play where you get this vascular injury to the intimal wall, uh, and you get the, the hypercoagulability and the venous stasis, then this all can contribute to forming a clot. And you suspect this when the postpartum patient is a prolonged fever that's unresponsive to conventional antibiotics. Now, in the 60s, they used to give heparin because there was a clot, and they used to assume they give heparin, the heparin's going to break up the clot. But there was a study that was done at Parkland by this guy named Brown, and he determined that prospectively there's no difference in outcomes whether you give heparin or not. So the mainstay right now of treatment 
is to give broad-spectrum antibiotics that are going to cover all the organisms that are going to cause the, the infection. So, uh, and some people will still give heparin, but it's controversial. Okay. But I think mainstream is that heparin is not given for septic pelvic thrombophobitis. All right. Now, how about for other clots that are actually, you know, like a PE or another clot, a DVT? Do you use heparin in pregnancy? You can certainly use uh, heparin, particularly if you've got a pulmonary embolus that you want to treat acutely. And so the, the gold standard is uh, the unfractionated heparin drip, and your goal is to get a PTT of 1.5 to 2.5 times normal. You need to check that with serial labs. Now, if it's for therapy and you want to send a patient home or you just want more ease of dosing, you can do noxaparin uh, with BID dosing, milligram per kilogram. And then um, for preventative, you can do the noxaparin uh, 40 milligrams sub-Q daily. And you can also use heparin 5,000 units subcutaneously. Uh, you can either do it BID dosing with sequential compression devices, or you can do it alone with TID dosing. And just as a, as a side note, the TID dosing is controversial for regional anesthesia. ASRA doesn't really come down one way or the other. They kind of maybe mildly suggest not doing that, but they don't come all the way out and say, don't do it. Okay. Now, if you're on 5,000 units BID, you can you don't have to worry, right? You can just go ahead and do your regional. If you're on preventative Lovenox, you said you have to wait 12 hours. If you're on therapeutic Lovenox, then it would be 24 hours, right? That's correct, yes. Okay. All right. And so if someone has a pulmonary embolus, we're going to obviously anticoagulate. Um, are there other, do, we, do you think about things like an IVC filter in these patients? Yeah, you certainly want to make sure that you're supporting their internal circulation. Most, most of the time, you don't have to do much other than just give them oxygen and, and watch them. But sometimes you need pressors to get them through. And an IVC filter is, is a clinical judgment that has to be made in a multidisciplinary fashion. And, uh, and we find them placed fairly frequently in, with people with recurrent pulmonary embolus, emboli in pregnancy. Okay. So, all right. So we've talked about a variety of different types of thromboembolic disease. Uh, anything else to add there before we move on? No, I don't have much, much else to add. All right. So another thing we hear a lot about in terms of complications uh, is bleeding and hemorrhage. So uh, what do we, are there ways you like to categorize different issues with bleeding in terms of uh, term pregnancy? Yeah. Um, so there's the placenta previa and... That is where the uh, the placenta is going to cover the cervix, and you can have different subtypes of placenta previa. You can have a total placenta previa, a partial placenta previa, a marginal placenta previa, and uh, it all depends on the extent of coverage. And the diagnosis is painless vaginal bleeding during the second or third trimester. And so, what you you want to avoid is you want to avoid speculum exams in these patients until you get an ultrasound to see what's going on. And as anesthesiologists, we're not putting speculums in patients, but it's a good thing to, to remember in case you see somebody trying to do these things. And the obstetric management is delivery via C-section because you want to avoid the, the fetus busting through that placenta on its way out through the birth canal. 
Right. And, and um, obviously, the patient, if the, if the fetus is premature, you can halt the labor with uh, with drugs, or you can give ster- steroids to try to mature the lungs while you're getting the baby more optimized for delivery. All right. Now, when you uh, think about um, placenta previa. Can you tell on ultrasound? Obviously, you can tell where it is and if it's a previa. Can you tell if it's actually uh, an accreta, or is that is there no way to know until you kind of deliver? Um, you know, the um, let me. I'm sorry. Let me add one more thing about the placenta previa. Yeah. The management. So, when you're delivering somebody, or when you're um, when you're looking at, when you're trying to evaluate placenta previa, you, um, if you're going to see the, if you're going to examine the patient, you want to do a so-called double setup exam, or you do a speculum exam in the OR with the ability to convert to C-section. And um, that's what we used to do. Nowadays, we have ultrasound, and so that has kind of obviated that. But um, the C-section, you really want to prepare for a possible large estimated blood loss. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the difference in placenta previa management. Now, placenta placental abruption, in contrast, is uh, it's complete or partial separation of the placenta from the decidua basalis. There are certain risk factors that correspond with uh, placental abruption, such as uh, hypertension, preeclampsia, advanced maternal age or parity, maternal and paternal uh, tobacco abuse, trauma premature rupture of membranes, chorioamnitis. The diagnosis is made with um, vaginal bleeding, uterine tenderness, uh, uh, increased uterine activity, and classically, epidural anesthetics were thought to mask the pain of placental abruption, but the clinical diagnosis is made largely from the monitoring strip. And so I remember when I was my first job out in private practice, they uh, I was taking care of a patient who was a re- who was a trial of labor after a cesarean section, and I had mentioned to the obstetrician about my concern of masking the possible um, placental abruption, and um, and what happens is that uh, the the strip is going to tell you first that there's a problem with the fetus as opposed to the uh, um, the, the pain from uh, that would be masked from an epidural. So you don't have to worry about your epidural covering these things up. The, the strip is going to tell you what's going on. Okay. And then just to back up a sec, so for placenta previa, as you said, you have to be prepared for large blood loss, and then we'll... Yeah, I think we'll get later to what if it's actually uh, an accreta or a percreta, right? Right. Okay, yes. so we'll come back to that. Okay, so uh, in terms of abruption, what uh, if you do have a placental abruption, what are the major complications you can see from that? So the major complications are going to be hemorrhagic shock, uh, acute renal failure, coagulopathy, and potentially field compromise or demise. The, uh, the major risks of the fetus include hypoxia and uh, prematurity. Okay. And then let's say we do have an abruption. What are we going to, how are we going to monitor, how are we going to monitor and manage it? So you took the words around my mouth. So you want to monitor the field heart rate. 
you can do that with an internal scalp electrode for more accurate monitoring. You want adequate IV access, particularly to administer fluids and blood if you need to. You want a fully catheter to measure the urine output to assess the volume status. And you want a, uh, a plan to deliver the infant in an expedited fashion. Okay, so these patients, unlike a placenta previa, don't have to have a C-section. They just have to be watched closely. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. All right. And then what about uterine rupture? We, that that they comes up on questions, uh, test questions, board questions, probably because it's so catastrophic. What, how common is it actually? It's really less than 1% of patients with a scarred uterus, for example, a prior C-section. And the pathophysiology is that you've got this scar that a surgeon made with the previous cesarean section. It's healed up, but as we remember from pathology, the tensile strength of a scar is going to be nowhere near the native tissue. And so the, when the uterus contracts, it puts stress on this uh, the scar line, and that scar can dehiss. And uterine scar dehiscence by itself isn't exactly the same as uterine rupture, and it, uh, it doesn't necessarily cause feel heart rate abnormalities, but the, the big uterine rupture where the the urinal wall actually separates from itself, it, um, you get a non-reassuring feel. Heart rate is the most telling. Okay, and some of the things that I have seen on uh, questions have to do with the presentation. You can see, I don't know how often it actually happens, but at least according to test questions, one of the signs could be a retraction of fetal parts uh, or a sudden um, change in station. Uh, those are some of the things that, that are asked about that would indicate uterine rupture. Is that right? That, that could absolutely happen. You can see uh, fetuses that go completely out of the uterus into the abdominal cavity in the perineum. So that's also been described. Okay. And so on the management side, what do we do if there is a uterine rupture? And so you want to deliver the fetus immediately, obviously. And you may or may not be able to repair the uterus, depending on the extent of the rupture and what the tissue is, is like. Uh, arterial ligation doesn't always work. Uh, hysterectomy is obviously a definitive treatment, but you, you really want to make sure that that's your only option because you're taking away somebody's fertility if they should decide to want to have more children. Mm-hmm. And um, interestingly enough, you can get uterine rupture in patients who don't have previous scarred uteruses. Um, there was a case in my institution not too long ago where a patient who had never had a C-section before had a uterine rupture, and that was a big deal. It was a lot of blood loss. And what happens is that patients with unscarred uteruses who have uterine rupture, they need more blood for resuscitation than patients with the previous scarred uterus. And the reason for this is that the fibrous edges of the old scar bleed less than the rough edges of a new scar. That makes sense. Okay. So what about on the anesthesia side? What are we going to do if we have a patient with a uterine rupture? So it's it's basically the usual trauma, large blood loss management. So you want large bore IVs. You want a Foley catheter to record your urine output to assess volume status. You want to consider invasive monitoring with arterial line. And you want blood products in the room, possibly the massive transfusion protocol for your institution. Okay, sounds good. So we talked about placenta previa. 
What about Vesa Previa? That's another Previa we hear about. What does that mean? So it's, it's real easy to get these Previas confused. And so the thing to remember about Vesa Previa is that it involves the fetus. And so Vesa Previa is a velamentous insertion of the fetal blood vessels over the maternal os. And the danger in this is that the presenting part of the fetus can rupture the fetal blood vessels, leading to fetal exsanguination. And you're not going to see blood coming out of the vagina. You're going to see fetal heart rate abnormalities that are going to lead to this diagnosis. The management is an emergency cesarean section. And one thing to remember is that this is really only a threat to the fetus, not to the mother. The mother's not going to die from vasoprevia but the fetus only needs a small amount of blood loss to be in a really bad spot. Right, and it doesn't have much blood to start with. And then, can you? what about ultrasound? Is there a role for ultrasound in being able to diagnose this? Uh, yeah, an ultrasound, um, uh, you can make a, uh, a diagnosis of vasoprevia, and the tra- my understanding is that the transvaginal ultrasounds are the, the more sensitive uh, instruments to, to make this diagnosis. Okay, great. So we've talked about peripartum hemorrhage. What about postpartum hemorrhage? What is the most common cause of postpartum hemorrhage? Okay, the most common cause of postpartum hemorrhage would probably come as no surprise to you. It's uterine acne, and it's the most common indication for maternal peripartum transfusion. Normally, endogenous oxytocin causes the uterus to contract, and we help this process along by giving exogenous oxytocin uh, to augment the endogenous oxytocin. Sometimes this oxytocin just doesn't work. And so what are the causes of uterine acne? You can get multiple gestation can contribute to it, macrosomia, big baby coming out, high parity where the uterus has been stressed over and over again, prolonged labor with decreased sensitivity to oxytocin, chorioamnitis, again with decreased sensitivity to uh, oxytocin. You can have a precipitous labor. The baby comes out really, really quick, and the uterus is kind of shocked into this situation. Augmented labor, again, uh, the more oxytocin you give, the less sensitive you're going to be to it. Tocolytic agents that hang up, hang on after your uh, the intended effect. And if you're doing a general anesthetic, high concentrations of uh, low volatile anesthetics can relax the uterus and cause acne. Great. So this is really also a commonly tested thing, the causes of uterine acne, and you've listed them all really well, Mike. Um, and so then how do we make the diagnosis uh, of uterine acne? And so the diagnosis is almost is obviously a, a clinical diagnosis. You get this boggy, soft, postpartum uterus. You got vaginal bleeding. And... In the operating room, you can inspect the uterus in the surgical field and really get an appreciation of whether it's contracted or not. A little bit more difficult in the labor and delivery suite because you have to palpate the uterus through the, the tissues of the abdominal wall. But in the uh, in, in labor and delivery room, you're really focused on what's going on with the vaginal bleeding. Lots of vaginal bleeding should heighten your your uh, suspicion for uterine acne. Okay. And what do we, how do we treat it? Let's say we have bleeding from uterine acne. What is, what's our, what is our approach to, to managing this? So the, 
the first line agent obviously is oxytocin and when you get into trouble it's usually because oxytocin is not working uh, another is the, I would call a second line drug is methylorganavine, uh, otherwise known as methogen and you can give this drug and it will cause you give this drug intramuscularly you don't want to give this intravenously and it will cause a very quick and profound constriction of the blood vessels but you don't want to give this in patients who've got preeclampsia because it could cause a, a stroke to them okay uh, for for patients who can't get methogen you can give a drug called hemabate which is prostaglandin f2 alpha and that drug works by um, constricting the arteries in a different different way and this drug is contraindicated in people who've got really bad asthma because it can cause bronchoconstriction uh, pretty readily and also you want to avoid this in people who have uh, pulmonary hypertension that is there before they deliver so okay and then another drug is a drug called Cytec, and we can give this through the rectum, and this can cause the ears to contract as well. It's also used to create a favorable cervix for some of these elective inductions, and it's often a drug we lean on when we can't use hemabate or methadone. And what is uh, is that its trade name or generic name, Mike? Uh, I believe that's the uh, the trade name. Um, the the generic name escapes me at the moment. Okay, let's see. Um, all right, great. So, what an oxytocin? What is the um, what is the dose you use, not prophylactically, but to treat uh, uterine adenine? So, there's some there are some centers that will give boluses of oxytocin. I would say the mainstream of practice is to take a liter bag of saline or lactate ringers and start off with 30 units per liter and then let it run as fast as it will go. And typically people will add up to another 30 units to make a total of 60 units per liter. And once you get to that level of concentration running wide open and you don't get the effect that you want, that's when you start looking for the other drugs. Great. All right. And I, while you were talking about that, I was able to look up Cytotech. And so mesoprostol is the okay. um, mesoprostol is the generic name. And so now that I'm seeing, I didn't recognize the name Cytotech, but now that I see that, I realize yes, because you mentioned it's also used to um, increase the favorability of the cervix and even to induce labor. So um, I was, it's good. I'm learning from you. I didn't realize that uh, mesoprostol was also used for uterine atony, but it sounds like can be a kind of backup drug for that too. Yes, th- thank you very much for that addition. I appreciate it, Jed. Absolutely. All right. So now, before I had uh, we had touched on, and now let's come back to uh, if placenta accreta. So what is placenta accreta, um, and how does it differ from just a normal placenta previa? So placenta accreta is where you've got this placenta that's not adhering to the uterus in a normal fashion. It's going much further than it should be. And so what will happen is it will invade the muscle of the uterus and or it will invade the myometrium. Uh, the, I'm sorry, let me back up. There are different varieties of placenta accreta. You've got the placenta accreta vera, 
you've got adherence to the myometrium without actual invasion of the muscle. You've got the increta, where you're actually going into the muscle. Okay. And then you've got the worst, which is percreta, that goes through the myometrium and into the pelvic organs. These are the the percretas are the cases you really, really fear. Okay. And why is that? What do we worry about? Well, you worry about what you're going to do when you deliver this baby because you've got all this uterine tissue that's going to bleed after delivery. And if it is not contained within the uterus, if it's, in fact, um, all over the abdomen, which has been documented in case reports, you're going to have to have a very meticulous dissection by a multidisciplinary surgical team that could take several hours, possibly most of the day, and require lots of blood products. Okay. Yeah, definitely doesn't sound good. So what are the risk factors for placenta accreta? Okay. Well, placenta previa is one. Prior C-sections are another. And both placenta previa and prior C-sections will together markedly increase the risk. So if you've got placenta previa and one prior C-section, your risk of accreta is 11%. If you've got placenta previa and two prior C-sections, your risk is 40%. All right, so it increases quite a lot. Yes. And what do we do in terms of diagnosis? How can we diagnose placenta previa uh, or placenta accreta? So the diagnosis is usually done by ultrasound. And if someone is really concerned about really quantifying what's going on, you can get an MRI. And it's all about counseling and preparation. You want to discuss the possibility of transfusion and possibly hysterectomy. It's good to have an obstetric anesthesia consult to really evaluate the patient and formulate the anesthetic plan. And you want to plan on the proper location and personnel for this uh, for deliver this baby. And there's really two, two schools of thought. One school of thought is, well, if we know about this really bad accreta or percreta, let's have it in the main operating room where we're close to the blood bank where we got lots of people around who can help us out and, uh, and that'll be safer. Another school of thought is, well, you know, we deliver people all the time up in labor and delivery and we really have to take all comers. If someone drops in and needs an emergency C-section, we're not going to prepare a room in the main operating room. We're going to deliver there right there at labor and delivery. So we should be able to handle any case that comes up to labor and delivery. And so I think that the right answer is probably a balance between those two thoughts. If you've got something that's really, really bad, you probably want to be close to the blood bank. You probably want access to more equipment. But the downside is that when you do a case in the main OR, it's kind of an away game for all the other players other than anesthesia. So the obstetricians who deliver babies aren't used to delivering them in the main OR. You're going to have to bring a warmer in. The NICU that's going to come to resuscitate the baby isn't used to being in the main OR. And so all those other teams are playing an away game. And anesthesia gets the benefit of playing a home game and you just really have to weigh the risks and benefits to the patient. And undoubtedly, a lot of times it makes sense to do it in the main OR, but I wouldn't knee-jerk and just automatically do it in the main OR because you do give up some things by going away from labor and delivery. 
Great. That makes a lot of sense. And obviously it has to be a discussion between all the different parties involved. Absolutely. All right. So what about on the OB side? What is the management of placenta accreta? So you want a C-section with a potential hysterectomy done concurrently. And the advantage to doing a planned hysterectomy is you have a much more controlled situation. Like for instance, you don't have to worry about separating the placenta from the uterus. You can just deliver the baby, leave the placenta in situ, and take the uterus out and block. And you can also, if you want, take a preoperative trip to the interventional radiology suite for uterine artery balloon catheter placement. Now, this is kind of controversial. Some centers start to do this, and, sometimes, and some of them have stopped doing this, but um, it's certainly an option if you can think about it beforehand. And the other option is to try to save the uterus. And the usual approach to this in the United States is you oversew the uterus, you do these so-called B-Lynch sutures, you're kind of folding the uterus on top of itself, and you're hoping that uh, it kind of holds. You're basically making it contract with these mattress sutures that kind of envelop the uterus. Mm-hmm. And a more unusual approach that people do outside the United States is to leave the placenta in situ. And that's not really done here in the United States, but in other countries they've tried this. And I don't have much... I don't have much experience with this at all. Okay. Um, Sounds good. So there's another uh, potential complication that uh, Jackie and I touched on last time uh, of potential for cord prolapse. So what what does that mean, and what do we do about it? Well, so what happens with uterine, or I'm sorry, with, with umbilical cord prolapse is that particularly when the bag of water is broken either spontaneously or with artificial rupture of membranes, the amniotic sac is disrupted, you're gonna get this gush of amniotic fluid, and the amniotic fluid could take a portion, a loop, if you will, of the umbilical cord. That umbilical cord, that loop can protrude out of the cervix, and the fetal head can compress that and cut off its own blood supply. And what you're gonna do is you're gonna see fetal bradycardia with the uterine cord prolapse and a, a timely vaginal exam, uh, the experienced provider is going to feel the umbilical cord on top of the head of the fetus. And so this is an obstetric an- an emergency. You want to push the cord back in if it's possible on the way to the OR for an emergency C-section. These are the cases where they have the so-called vaginal hand. You have somebody with a sterile glove with their hand in the vagina trying to kind of plug the hole in the dike as they're going in the operating room and try and get this baby out from above. And, um, you know, this is just another reason why home births are a bad idea. Is if you got a home birth and you got a, uh, a prolapsed cord with a rupture of membranes, you're really kind of out of luck because you have to call an ambulance, you have to go to the hospital, and by the time you get there, your baby could be dead. So Okay, so that's uh, definitely an obstetrical emergency. Uh, and if it happens, you need to get a C-section right away. Yes. Okay. Uh, how about retained placenta? You mentioned in, in some other countries, they actually, in the setting of placenta accreta, will leave it there on purpose. Um, but what is it? Or do we worry, at least in this country, when it's uh, when there are small pieces of it that are left? Absolutely. It can cause uh, uterine bleeding. And uh, I've seen patients drop their hemoglobin all the way down to five or six from 
retain products of conception. So you really want to work hard at the time of delivery to get the placenta, placental products out. Sometimes you can't, and when you can't, you got to go in there and get out, usually with the dilation and curettage. Now, anesthesiologists can facilitate the removal of placentas. And so neuroaxial anesthesia and or sedation will allow the OB to curettage or remove the placenta. If the case is really severe, uh, general anesthesia is sometimes employed. Okay. Uh, you also want uterine relaxation. And the old way was we would induce general anesthesia with an antrachial tube and the volatile agents would relax the uterus. And a more uh, a contemporary way to uh, relax the uterus is to use nitroglycerin. I can tell you from a, an economic standpoint, at my institution, we used to have these really cool spray things of nitroglycerin. So you would take this spray thing and you would spray the, the, uh, the sublingual space of the patient's tongue. You have them lift up their tongue, spray sublingually, and boom, it would bypass the liver, go straight to where it needed to be, and you'd get some really good relaxation. Now, the problem with this day and age with that technique is that um, that little bottle was a multi-use bottle and it costs about 200 bucks. With the joint commission, they are moving more towards single use in an attempt to decrease cross-contamination. And so it doesn't make much sense at all to spend 200 bucks for a one-time use of a multi-use vial when you've got a bottle of nitroglycerin IV that costs about 12 bucks. Right. And so, so what I like to do is in a pinch, I'll get about a half a cc of that uh, comes from the vial or from the bottle, and I'll give that, make sure it's flushed. The first dose, you're going to get some adherence to the tubing, so you might have to give a second dose, but that usually does the trick. Okay. And that, what's that concentration, Mike? Uh, in, in other words, how much are you actually giving? You know, I, th- I think that it's about, uh, I think it's 50 mics per cc. Okay. So you're giving about, if you said a half a cc, you're giving about 25 mics at a time. Yes. Okay. Uh, and if I remember correctly, it depending, sometimes you said you might have to give a dose or a couple doses. Sometimes I think you may have to give up to 100 or 200 mics, depending on how, uh, you know, how the uterus is actually relaxing. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. So now I would imagine that as we're doing this, you, you then, of course, are at risk for u- uterine atony, right? You're actually now purposely relaxing the uterus. Um, nitroglycerin is such a short-acting medication that maybe it doesn't increase your risk much, but uh, you probably have to keep an eye out for uterine bleeding after this is done. That's correct. And, uh, and it's a balance between relaxing the uterus enough so you can get your, your, your curettes in to do the curetting that you need to do. And then once you get all the products out, you want the uterus to contract, and so you have to wait for the nitroglycerin to wear off and possibly give some uterotonics. Okay. So let's turn now to uh, a kind of completely separate potential complication of abnormal presentation. So we hear a lot about breach presentation. What does that mean, and how do we think about it? Well, the normal uh, presentation of a fetus is the so-called vertex position where the head is down, but you can get uh, different presentations where 
you have, for instance, a frank breach where the lower extremities are flexed at the hips and extend at the knees. This is kind of one of the common uh, scenarios of breach presentation. You can have a complete breach where the lower extremities are flexed at both the hips and the knees. And you can have an incomplete breach where one or both the lower extremities are extended at the hips. Now, what this means for us is really not a whole lot. I mean, most of the time nowadays in the modern obstetric practice, if a baby is breached, they're going to be delivered by a C-section. Some of the older, more seasoned obstetricians at my institution, I have seen them do vaginal deliveries, breach, knowing that the baby is breached, very skilled with forceps, uh, able to do it. That's more of a craft than an industry. Craft being that's very dependent on individual characteristics, like Dr. Smith could be twice as good as Dr. Jones at doing that. But when you go to the operating room for cesarean sections, everybody is just about the same. I mean, some people are faster, some people are slower, but the outcomes are gonna be about the same for a cesarean section. And that's why, from a quality perspective, the obstetric physicians have opted to really use cesarean sections to deal with the, the breech babies nowadays. All right, and how about aversion? Can you do an external cephalic version to try to turn breech babies to vertex? That is a, 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 uh, a procedure that's often employed, seldom successful. The success rates vary from 35 to 86%. It's rarely successful when the cervix is fully dilated or the membranes are ruptured. That's kind of more like a Hail Mary that's probably not going to work. And really, the uh, what, what, when you're covering labor and delivery, there are two varieties of external cephalic versions. There's the, hey, anesthesia, we're going to do this external cephalic version. Keep an ear out for a stat C-section. And so I say, okay, we'll make sure we're not doing anything else when you're doing the external cephalic version. So you don't want to be tying up your only anesthesia team or your only operating room doing something elective, like an elective cesarean section, when you are going to knowingly do an external cephalic version. You want to make sure that you've got a plan to crash the operating room. Now, conversely, sometimes you have an obstetric team that says, hey, anesthesia, we're going to do a version, and we also want you to provide anesthesia. And so my preferred course of action to provide anesthesia for external cephalic version is to give them a surgical anesthetic. And so I will either do an epidural or a spinal that will create conditions suitable for cesarean section. So I want my dense T4 level. And what that does is it really facilitates the provider to manipulate the uterus and get that baby turned around. And if you have a problem with the fetus, you already have your surgical level to do an immediate cesarean section. If I am involved with these external cephalic versions, I request that they're performed in the operating room so that we can proceed immediately to cesarean section without having to move the patient. And this is accommodated at my institution. Okay. Great. And we talked about uh, breach delivery and that it's mostly done via C-section these days. What about other presentations? Are there other presentations that we need to think about? Um, so you can have a face presentation, and that can be delivered vaginally. 
you can have a brow presentation. And uh, in the brow presentation, the cervical spine is intermediate between the full flexion of the normal vertex presentation, the full extension of the face presentation. And these are usually delivered via cesarean section. And you can have the so-called compound presentation where you have an extremity prolapsed alongside the main presenting fetal part. So in other words, you might have the head and a hand coming out at the same time? Yeah. And do those get delivered vaginally? I think that experienced providers who are confident in their abilities to deliver babies vaginally might try this. I think most people, if they know this is going on, are going to deliver them via C-section. Okay. How about a shoulder presentation? Oh, so the shoulder presentation, this is also known as a transverse lie. And this almost always results in a cesarean section. And you can try a cephalic version. And um, if it's a twin-twin delivery, you can try to deliver the uh, twin B, who's got a shoulder presentation. But... um, the uh, the cesarean delivery of a back down transverse lie can also be difficult in and of itself, and the reason for that is you just can't do it efficiently with a low transverse incision, and you have to do this classical up and down vertical uterine incision to get the baby out when they're back down transverse lie. Okay, and is the reason that if it's a t- second twin that's a transverse lie, you can sometimes do it is because, in theory, the cervix is already so dilated that they may they may make it out that way? Yeah, I mean, like, uh, when you're doing a, a twin-twin delivery, the when you're doing a twin-twin vaginal delivery, it's always done in the operating room. It's always done with the double setup with the ability to proceed immediately to cesarean section. The twin A has to be vertex. So you're going to get one baby out through the vagina, and you're using an ultrasound machine to really kind of see what's going on with twin B. You've got nitroglycerin in the room to relax the uterus so that they have more room to manipulate the fetus, possibly flip it to vertex with an external cephalic version. And if all those things fail, you're right there in the operating room, and you can do a cesarean section. So that's why it's reasonable to try to deliver twin B if they've got a shoulder presentation. Okay. All right. And so we touched before, Mike, on maternal CPR. Is there anything? um, That's something that sometimes comes up on questions and obviously is important to know in in practice as well. Obviously, you're not in a good situation if you're doing CPR on a a term pregnant woman, but uh, do you want to just summarize what do you want to keep in mind if you are in that situation? So what you want to do is you want to... um, you want to do left lateral decubitus position to try to optimize blood flow of the uterus. You want to do compressions, chest compressions, uh, uh, slightly above the, the, uh, the sternum. You want to start the clock. And so after uh, four minutes of CPR, you want somebody make an incision to deliver that baby within a minute. And what my institution has done to facilitate this is that all the crash carts in labor and delivery have scalpels on them. And for the sole purpose of delivering the fetus wherever it needs to be delivered. And like I said before, it sounds like a really gruesome thing, and it is, but the, the evidence we have from case reports is that the mother and the fetus has the, have the best chance for survival if you can deliver 
the uh, the fetus within five minutes. Okay. It, I'm sorry, because what it does is it offloads the metabolic demand off the mother and gives the fetus the best chance and the mother the best chance to survive. Okay, great. So that's the goal. Get the fetus out and then continue CPR uh, in the mother and, and, of course, whatever the baby needs as well. Correct. All right. Anything else to add, Mike? I think that's it. Great. Well, thank you so much. Uh, this was really uh, well covered and um, completes our two-part series on complications at term. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Always great to have Mike on the show. What did you think about the episode? Go to ACRAC.com, A-C-C-R-A-C.com, where you can leave comments on this or any episode. Let us know, how do you manage these OB complications? Do you do anything differently than what Mike laid out? We can all learn from you and how you manage at your own place. Also, you can join the mailing list in the upper right-hand corner. And, of course, you can always email me, ACRAC at ACRAC.com. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and rating, even if you've already left one. Leaving another can help boost the show in the iTunes search findings and so can help others find the show. Also, if you would be interested and willing, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C where you can become a fan or a patron of the show and donate even if it's just a dollar or two. It makes a big difference in helping to defray the cost of the show. And as our plan is, of course, to keep it free and available to everyone. Any little bit helps. And we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. For the ACRAC podcast and Dr. Mike Hofkamp, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc